Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Bit of a wet, damp day here in Kamloops. A lot of rain coming down last night. Of course, you heard the morning news run. Uh, that's been snow in the Coquihalla between here and Merritt. So if you're planning on tackling the Coke, uh, take care out there. Uh, we got a packed show for you if you want to stay indoors and out of the wet. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk uh, legal cannabis supply uh, with former Kamloops MLA and now in the legal cannabis industry, Terry Lake, in a little while. We'll do our regular Tuesday political chat with Jeffrey Myers. And we'll also touch base on the land title records issue uh, with a lawyer who knows a thing or two about that. But first up, talking about last night's uh, Board of Education meeting in Raft River Elementary in Clearwater, the Board Vice Chair Rhonda Kershaw joining me in studio. Good morning, how are you? Hi Shane, I'm great, how are you doing? Good, thanks for coming in. I know uh, poor Board Chair Kathleen Carpuck apparently has been hit with the with the awful, awful flu. So <laughs> Yeah, she has. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, but unfortunately she's ill. So Yeah, great. Hey, okay, so uh, first off, uh, it's always good to get out to some of these uh, rural parks that you guys have a massive district. So uh, last night you're up at Raft River Elementary in Clearwater to do a Board of Education meeting there. Uh, so first off, uh, how's the whole Clearwater, North Thompson scene looking for students? We talk a lot about Kamloops, uh, but how are we doing up the North Thompson? Clearwater is fantastic. They have a really vibrant school. We got to see a great presentation on their outdoor uh, classroom initiatives with, uh, with their outdoor gardens. So the kids seem to be really enjoying the 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 education up there. Cool. We also got to see Meet meet the Pack, and it was yeah. just a great experience. It always is to go into the rural communities. What, what's, the, what's the challenges in that part of the district as compared to some? I mean, we are aware of the enrollment issues and the old schools and the, you know, the jam-packed and all this kind of stuff. Does Clearwater and, you know, Chase and some of the rural areas provide different sort of challenges for students or no? Um, they they do have, uh, they don't have the same enrollment type pressures, but they have some of the challenges that that you see in rural communities at the elementary school level, um, not as much, but in when you get into the, the high school level, they have a small cohort, so sometimes course choice and, and yeah. course offerings become a bit of a, a challenge for them. <laughs> and uh, when you get that far out, also recruitment retention of teaching and oh, really? principal yeah. staff. Yeah. Is, yeah. Well, Clearwater is a pretty nice part of the world. So, it's, I mean, it's not like you're living in the middle of the desert or something. But Yeah, no, it's beautiful. But uh, it, there are still some challenges out there for... Yeah, I know that BCTF is uh, in the bargaining table trying to address some issues on that front. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, one of the other big stories that came out of Clearwater over the last week, of course, was the Sikh community up there who sold their temple. Uh, and uh, it was $164,000. They've divvied that up in an enormous example of giving back to the community and charity. Uh, some money's flowing into the school district, I understand. So I believe it's, what, $30,000 for the secondary school and ten for Raft River Elementary? That's correct. The, the school district were the beneficiaries of just an incredibly generous grant from the Sikh community. Uh, we also had a chance to recognize one of the members of the Sikh community for 30 years of employment uh, with the district last wow. night. So it's, it was just a, a great news story all I'm, around. I've never held a job for 30 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, any idea yet how you guys are going to designate that money or whether there's a challenge there that any, either of the schools it can go to? or I don't know that as of yet. Okay. I think that it's it's pretty new still. Okay, fantastic. But what a what an awesome 
uh, display of sort of community thinking right up there is fantastic. So absolutely, it was quite an emotional meeting when we got to recognize that. So oh, really? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, uh, one of the big issues uh, on the agenda last night was the employee code of conduct, which tackles a lot of stuff. There's things here on whistleblower protection, on reporting abuse, uh, you know, dressing appropriately, dealing with um, employees oh. who who may be engaged in relationships and how they should steer clear conflicts of interest. There's a lot of stuff in here. Um, I guess my question to you is, is this sort of um, uh, a proactive, okay, we need to set these rules in the case of, was there something in the district that happened that's okay, oh my God, we need to have some rules in place here. Was it sort of a reactive or proactive deal? No, this was a, a proactive approach to our administrative procedures. We're actually looking at them holistically as a district uh, at all of our admin procedures and all of our policies. Uh, this particular employee code of conduct came out of some feedback from our employees during the engagement survey last year. So this was actually something that they were looking for was some some direction and, and some some feedback. So uh, a lot of like I mentioned, it's pretty pretty comprehensive stuff. There isn't much that I don't think has been missed. <laughs> Even includes talking to the public and uh, I guess in the in this day of social media you don't want somebody saying, oh, I'm the principal of the school. I know what the hell I'm talking about and blasting somebody on Twitter or whatever. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of stuff. How did you guys go about sort of okay we're doing this, now how do we make it all comprehensive? Um, I wasn't really involved in that particular part of the process. So this is an administrative procedure. This this comes to the board uh, for some feedback. But I do know that they had a committee that they set up that was uh, had members from all of our partner groups, uh, KVP, VA, the, the KTTA, and our local QP. And they sat down and, and they worked through this. And okay. they sent it back out for some referral. And uh, at this point, it it will become it, it'll be rolled out in September 2019. Right. Yeah. So there is still some some time. Do the do the employee groups or different people in the district have to sort of get their head wrapped around it and sign off on it, or is it a fait accompli? How does it? Um, this uh, because they were part of the development. This is you know there might be some minor tweaking and changing. But, right. But my understanding is that this will be. Do you know if other districts have something similar? Are we unique in this or? Some do absolutely. Yeah. Lots of districts are starting to look at their their administrative procedures in, in sort of a more holistic you know traditionally it's it's been the board policy manual but sometimes that's not as practical <laughs> <laughs> uh the other big news though because you guys are getting back to work is the budget uh what's going on on the budget side obviously uh we're struggling with an enrollment issue which is uh, there's a pro and con we're all aware of the cons with the jam-packed schools older buildings the need on the capital side but on the funding side uh, there is some good news in the budget because it does mean to some degree some more money coming into the district question now is is the, is it sufficient or, or no? Well, I think that we would always love a bigger budget for the same <laughs> amount of students, but <laughs> in general, the budget this year is, is essentially a good news story. We absolutely have enrollment pressures and, and you'll see that we have our, our, our capital advocacy plan that that we're working through, um, but in terms of the operating budget this year, it was it was really a good news story because when your enrollment decline, you're always looking at what yes. you're going to have to cut. When you're in enrollment growth, you can start to address some of those strategic initiatives that you have that and link them back to our strategic plan. So our big one this year was improving our outcomes in numeracy. Um, we also have some enhanced for students with special needs, and we've got a focus on mental health and and healthy relationships. So 
those are those were our big ones um, improving Aboriginal student success we really got to touch on all six points of our strategic plan when we were doing this and then of course we had with enrollment growth we have increased need for custodial and and so those those required right. type things yeah so. um, on that I know that uh, the the province has sort of launched the funding review which has drawn some ire from the BC Teachers Federation so there's some back and forth there and then uh, here in Kamloops we got that rural urban thing so the one size fits all per, per student funding formula doesn't necessarily meet our needs uh, any idea what the district would like to see if they're gonna tweak or change funding to kind of better complement what we do and make it more fair to us or no yeah the the province, um, the working group came out with 22 recommendations. The the first couple of recommendations that came out of there, the, the board was really happy to see because they talked around um, funding for the 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 special requirements so um you know one of them we run nine thousand kilometers worth of busing every day that that's a significant cost that that other districts yeah vancouver doesn't even run a school yeah yeah so they the the some of the recommendations really centered around getting those costs covered and then working out the rest with a per student capita so it's really draft at this point there's not a lot of detail it's hard to really comment but but some of those key initiatives we were happy with Okay. Well, that sounds like a bit of a challenge. Uh, we're out of time, but Rhonda, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your morning. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Thanks, Shane. Have a great day. There's Rhonda Kershaw. She is the vice chair of the Camelot Thompson School Board. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here on the Woodford Show, and we're going to dive back into the land title records issue with a lawyer who knows a thing or two about the, that particular issue. Frank Quinn will join us next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, the removal of the land title records is a story that you've heard a lot about over the last few weeks. I wanted a different perspective on this. Of course, we heard recently from the Premier that he's going to talk to the Forest Minister, Doug Donaldson, and try and ensure that proper consultation uh, takes place, both with the city and with area First Nations. We had a couple motions passed at the civic level saying, hey, let's press pause here. We don't want those records removed. We want to talk to people, figure out what's going on. Land Titles Office seems hell-bent on forging ahead. Uh, Chatted with some First Nations folks yesterday. Yesterday, they tell me they have not heard boo from them as far as any kind of talk, consultation, or otherwise. I wanted to get a sense what the removal of those records might mean, and a real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning, Frank Quinn, who is a Kamloops lawyer, also sort of the head of a, uh, a group of uh, lawyers and businesses that interact directly with the land titles records, and, and Frank himself has some serious history with them. Obviously, that there's been a number of stories and concerns in the community around what's going on with the land titles office. First Nations are upset. They weren't consulted. They want... Uh, they want this whole thing to come to an end. TNRD's on board. City of Kamloops is on board. Uh, all that said, the Land Titles Office, as of yesterday morning, has put a release on their website, uh, which seems to indicate that uh, it's all systems go in this thing. So as far as this particular decision to remove records from the city of Kamloops, uh, from your perspective, uh, what's the problem here? I spent uh, almost my full articles when I was uh, a law student in the land titles office and had uh, as a result the experience of understanding how significant these documents are not only from the perspective of uh, the historical records of our community but the significance they have to understanding uh, the nature of title and rights in lands in our community Uh, these records 
are um, exactly that. They're historical, significant historical documents, uh, and they are as historical and significant as any uh, museum type of documents that exist in our country. And uh, from the perspective of our our businesses, uh, whether it's uh, the ranching industry, whether it's uh, forestry, whether it's mining, whether it's the interests uh, and protection of the interests of our First Nations communities, the condition of these original records is critical to understanding and pursuing those rights. So, the land registrar who I chatted with last week told me he has full authority and the office is independent enough to make this decision. Uh, we've learned uh, as of yesterday the Forest Minister Doug Donaldson, who has some um, role to play in this, is sort of the minister responsible for the office to some sense of, of degree, um, that he was informed about it back in October, uh, not a whisper to anybody else involved. Uh, do you think that office has a duty to consult with the stakeholders, First Nations, City, etc.? before pulling off a decision like this? Certainly from an ethical perspective uh, and a sort of a logical business perspective, any time any arm of government uh, is going to make a decision which has a material effect on the ability of those businesses to carry on uh, the economic activity that they carry on, sure, there's an obligation to consult. And frankly, I've never run into a major decision like this where the, the business groups haven't been consulted. As far as the First Nations are concerned, and I'm not an expert on First Nations law, but I think it's pretty trite to say that uh, these records are property in the province uh, that uh, have a material uh, effect on the nature of title to property in the province. And the law of our Supreme Court of Canada very clearly says there's an obligation to consult with First Nations and to accommodate their interests. So from your perspective here, Frank, considering wh where we are right now, uh, I understand the LTSA is to some degree reaching out, uh, sending sort of City Council a Q&A letter, uh, and uh, I'm not sure what's going on on the First Nations front as of yet, but um, I mean, <laughs> considering where we are, even if they do consult at this point, is it too little too late? Well, you know, I... It's hard to understand why a decision would be made like this and continue to be pursued when all of the interest groups that have concerns have expressed their concerns to the authority and to the government. Uh, one would expect just logically that there'd be a step back and, and, uh, and just common courtesy would expect that they would begin discussions with the interest groups to make sure that the decision was the right decision and, uh, and as far as the First Nations are concerned, fulfill their obligation to consult the comedy. Um, I can only think um, that the authority and every experience I've ever had with anyone at the authority is that they're good people, uh, they're ethical people, um, and that uh, given the opportunity to make the right decision, I think, I think they probably will. What will be the impact to, to this community and, and to, to sort of the, the legal and business circle that, that inhabits the, uh, the orbit of the land titles office records uh, when those records are, are moved away to Victoria? What's, what's the impact here? It, it's, it's really hard to explain to somebody that hasn't been involved with those records how significant the integrity of the records is. It's not just the fact that there's a bunch of documents there. They are filed in a certain way 
when you start to look at those documents uh, for, for evidentiary purposes to understand the nature of title, every nuance of those documents is important. Major lawsuits have been run, won and lost in, in our area uh, based on small notations made on the corner of a document, things written on the back of the document, the order of their filing, the documents in front of them and behind them. And not only that, where they're located in the land titles office, there's a, uh, there's a body of expertise that has been uh, built in our land titles agents and in some of the lawyers in the community around how to use those documents. So when somebody comes along and says, I'm going to move them to another location, how they pack them up, the order that they pack them up in, um, uh, how they move them, how they're unpacked and ordered, Documents are easily lost, misplaced, put out of order, and their historical significance and, and their importance as evidentiary documents is lost. Um, it's not, and I've heard the expression used by a couple of people, we're not talking about newspapers here. Right? We're talking about the history of our province, and particularly the history of this part of the province, which is the only part of the province left that still has its own documents stored in its own land titles office. They've taken them out of Rupert, they've taken them out of Prince George, uh, they've moved off to Victoria, and uh, it's changed the whole fabric of, of those historical documents as a result. Part of the argument for moving them from the land titles perspective is to digitize them, and, and they sell that as, uh, as a necessary thing for preservation, etc. And they also say that it will allow access from anywhere in the province with a much faster turnaround time. Um, you would know this to be true or false much more than I would. Uh, is, that, is that an argument that can be made or no? Well, it's an argument to be made. I think the fact of the matter is, and uh, this is anecdotal, but if you take a look at Prince Rupert and Prince George and the movement of their documents, ask the simple question, how many of them have been digitized? Uh, I would suggest to you it's very, very few, uh, even though they've been there for years. Uh, and, and as importantly, when you do go and ask for a document that is originally located uh, in uh, Victoria, a junior clerk looks for that document they often pull it out they uh they, they uh, take it out of the documents out of uh, out of order uh they produce it uh digitized in a way that's not representative of what the original document is or often you simply get a note back saying not available so uh yeah i would really challenge uh the legitimacy of the argument that digitization solves the problem okay frank thanks for taking a few minutes really appreciate it my pleasure. There we go. That was Kamloops lawyer Frank Quinn discussing uh, his feelings on the removal of land title records from Kamloops to Victoria, an issue that's still percolating away, and I think you're going to hear a lot more about yet. Take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about concerns about a lack of cannabis supply. Terry Lake will join us. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. 
Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, on Friday, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth in a media avail uh, addressed the issue of the uh, snail's pace of uh, the issuing of licenses, uh, provincial approvals uh, for licenses of legal cannabis operations. Uh, there's a six-month and counting waiting list for those. Among the reasons that he said uh, for the delay, along with criminal background checks, was a challenging uh, conditions around marijuana supply. So I want to get a sense of that from the industry itself. Pleasure to welcome the program, former Kamloops North MLA former health minister, uh, now vice president of corporate social responsibility with the Hexo Corporation, Terry Lake. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Very well, thank you. In the snow in the Ottawa Gatineau area, <laughs> back to Kamloops. <laughs> well, it's actually snowing on the Coke right now, so uh, we can't plead, uh, can't entirely play the good weather card over here. Um, so, uh, as you heard, uh, you know, Mike Farnworth is saying, listen, this is a challenging cross-Canada issue, this lack of supply. So much so, in fact, Terry says that Alberta, I don't know if this is true or not, he says Alberta has completely pressed hold on issuing licenses until the supply uh, kinks are worked out. So, from your perspective, from an industry perspective, um, A, how bad is it out there? Well, first of all, Alberta has way more cannabis retail outlets than B.C., so I, I don't buy that uh, excuse, I think. BC is, is way behind in opening cannabis retail stores. In fact, I know you know entrepreneurs in Kamloops that are paying $6,000 or so a month uh, on a lease and uh, still waiting for the provincial government to uh, okay their application. So I know even if they didn't have a, a full supply of cannabis to sell, they'd like to be selling some to, uh, to address the costs that they're incurring. So I don't buy that as an excuse for not having more stores open in BC, but the reality is that the, the supply has not met the demand uh, to date and there are a number of different reasons for that uh, many of which you know we've talked about before number one it's a very complex supply chain you can imagine that you know in the black market you're you have you know literally thousands of people growing it and and really all they have to do is put it in a bag they don't have to worry about you know all the the processes involved the packaging uh the regulations and so that supply chain with excise stamps uh, different ones for each province uh has proved challenging and so the industry is is working away at that uh increasing the growing space is occurring rapidly so for instance in december the amount of cultivation area in canada increased 20 percent in that one month alone uh, but it takes uh, about four or five months really by the time you take a cutting and put it in a in the, the growing um, uh, matrix uh, to where that uh, is ready and packaged and ready to go out to the distributor. So there is a lag phase there that will take some time. Uh, there's a lot of large uh, cannabis suppliers, Hexo among them, but uh, to what degree would some of the micro growers be able to address this if there was an environment where we could uh, spur their growth? Uh, would they be able to contribute to meaningful help out, uh, meaningfully help out on the supply side or no? I think it's a, it's a good point because where we see the shortages are on things like high THC concentrations in flour, for instance. So, you know, they, it's not that there's everything is sold out. There are certain uh, types of cannabis that are more popular uh, in, in certain markets than others. So people that are using cannabis uh, to get high are, are uh, you know, prefer the high THC flour, and that has been something that's been hard to get a hold of. Uh, when you look at people who use uh, cannabis for more of a wellness, so looking at the non-intoxicating CBD, the oil is more popular, and so it's hard to keep CBD oil in stock. Uh, so the micro-cultivators certainly would be, I think, uh, a way of closing the gap on some of the 
high THC flour, for instance. I think that's, uh, you know, where they would uh, have a strength. And there is an effort uh, on the part of organizations in B.C. to form a cooperative to bring a lot of these micro cultivators together so that they can, you know, have the benefit of a bigger organization that's behind them that, that helps, uh, you know, in terms of administration and, and figuring out the system. So I think once those come on stream, and they're, they're yet to come on stream, uh, that would uh, help fill the gap, particularly on the flower side. When do you see supply catching up with demand, Terry? Especially uh, we're on the verge of the legalization of edibles, sort of a phase two of legalization, and then considering the growth of stores. I mean, if suddenly there was 200 stores in BC, never mind other provinces, um, would sort of the supply, would the disparity continue, or are we going to see kind of an equalization? And if so, when? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, if you look at, um, you know, the situation in Washington State, Colorado, you know, you saw the evolution of the market over about five years. And initially, you know, there was a, a, a very high demand, uh, but the price was high. And so the black market still thrived. Uh, once the supply uh, met the demand and actually exceeded the demand, you saw the price start to drop. So you will have these fluctuations and then a settling out of the the system, but it probably will take a couple of years for that to happen. And you mentioned edibles coming on stream. So this fall we'll have, you know, drinkable cannabis products, we'll have edible cannabis products, uh, we'll have concentrates that can be, you know, used in vaping, for instance. And so all of those uh, will increase uh, demand on the legal side, because right now that, that uh, supply is being met in the black market. So uh, it, uh, it'll take a, probably another year or so, I would think, before we kind of balance out the supply and demand. And, you know, we, we were looking at an industry that was um, in prohibition for the better part of 100 years. And, and to bring it into the, you know, fully legalized, regulated market, um, you know, it, it can't be expected to happen overnight. So the fact that we've been able to create this industry in Canada uh, in a very short period of time, I think it's actually quite remarkable, the progress that we're making, but we're certainly not there yet. So I would think another year of this kind of instability before things start to, to kind of flatten out. We've talked about this before, but what's the current sort of status, to your knowledge, of, of medical marijuana users? Uh, if we're seeing a lack of supply recreationally, and, and maybe it's getting worse, I don't know, but uh, if we're seeing that lack of supply, is it is it still overflowing and impacting medical marijuana users or, or no? Well, there are some that, uh, that have been impacted, uh, and the reason is that some licensed producers have been, you know, earmarking inventories for recreational product to meet the contracts that they've signed with provincial distributors. And that has, at times has come at the cost of medical patients. But there are, I think, enough, uh, you know, responsible licensed producers out there that have protected the supply for their medical cannabis patients. Uh, you know, at Hexo, we've, we've been very clear about doing that. And uh, we feel that's our, our obligation to our medical patients is to ensure they have uh, an adequate supply. So my advice for medical patients, if they are looking at uh, difficulties, uh, to look around at other licensed producers because there are, I think, enough of us out there that are protecting their medical patients. And uh, I think that's just the responsible thing to do. Now, you said the lack of supply, uh, you don't really buy into that for the, slow, the snail's pace of growth in the amount of licensees here in British Columbia. Uh, it is long. I mean, a six-month wait for the first private store here in Kamloops, and uh, the, that uh, count is, is ongoing for other stores in, in the queue. Uh, if it's not the supply, um, Farnworth said that the other issue was the criminal background check, which he says is extensive and, and can be problematic in, in a time, on a time basis. Do, do you buy that part of the argument or no? 
Well, I mean, the fit and proper test, which has always been there for private liquor stores, uh, you know, is essentially what you use to see if, if someone, you know, is a, a good ethical uh, background in order to, to run a regulated product like this. So, I again, it's a, it's a lot of work to do to stand up in a short period of time. But, you know, it's been long enough, and you look at other provinces, uh, they've been able to open up uh, retail stores much more quickly. I mean, here in Quebec, uh, we've got another tranche of stores opening up, and that's all government, uh, but they'll be opening up this summer. Ontario, of course, delayed theirs with the change of government, and they've had some some issues getting all of their stores open. So I, I understand that it's a lot of work and they need to make sure they do it properly. Um, but I don't think blaming the supply is uh, is valid given in Alberta. In Calgary alone, there are more uh, retail cannabis shops than all of BC and Ontario combined. So, you know, yes, they may not have full shelves, uh, but they're at least able to, to start their business, get it off the ground, and there are entrepreneurs out there that are dangling by a thread because they simply don't have any cash flow because of the, the lag time to get their retail license from the province. And last question, uh, any, any decisions on a return to politics yet? Well, it's, uh, it's in process, uh, so stay tuned. Um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll certainly have something to say in the near future. <laughs> that uh, sounds very political, Terry. Uh, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Uh, that's former Kamloops North MLA, former cabinet minister, and uh, currently in the uh, legal cannabis industry with Hexo Corporation, the vice president of corporate social responsibility, Dr. Terry Lake. Uh, take a quick break, and on the other side, uh, we'll talk to, as we do every Tuesday, Jeffrey Myers. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Always a delight to touch base with Jeffrey Myers as we do every single Tuesday on the show. Uh, good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. Good to be on with you. Yeah, good uh, Good to have you on as always. Okay, well, there's a whole bevy of stuff we need to dive into, and uh, thankfully we can talk about some Canadian politics because this SNC-Lavalin story is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, an interesting sort of uh, other legal aspect to this uh, that I'm sure you're aware of is that uh, lawyers representing the Prime Minister um, have sent a letter to Andrew Scheer, leader of the opposition, uh, basically threatening to sue him for libel over his assertion that the Prime Minister politically interfered with the criminal prosecution uh, in the SNC-Lavalin case, and now Andrew Scheer is coming out and basically publicly daring the Prime Minister to follow through on all this. Uh, your assessment of, of, I mean, there's obviously a lot of politics at play here, but from a legal perspective, is this a wise move or no? Well, I mean, before I answer that question, let me say this. It's not an unprecedented move. Um, if you'll remember, about a decade ago, uh, then-Prime Minister Harper launched a $3.5 million libel suit uh, against the Liberals after they had um, posted on a website alleging that the cons- that two senior Conservatives, with the knowledge of uh, Mr. Harper himself, had sought to bribe MP Chuck Cadman to support uh, the budget. Uh, he later dropped that uh, suit. Uh, in, going back even earlier in 1998, uh, Prime Minister Chrétien threatened to sue then um, Leader of the Opposition, Preston Manning, uh, regarding allegations that he had sold a Senate seat to a friend, and he ultimately dropped that. So the short answer to your question is defamation um, and threats of defamation and libel suits by Prime Ministers against opposition leaders have a kind of um, storied history. Now, as a question of law, though, um, 
it's 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 a, it's a little bit more complicated. So let me just say this for your listeners who are interested. I teach tort law, and this year I didn't actually teach the tort of defamation, but I usually do, and it's an important one. Um, and so there's three elements that have to be proven on the balance of probabilities, right? It's not a criminal case, so we're not talking about proof beyond a reasonable uh, doubt. So you have to show on the balance of probabilities, meaning more likely than not, that um, one, the material uh, was defamatory. Two, uh, the material referred to the plaintiff. And three, the material was published. That is, it went out to a kind of the public, right? So, um, and once it's proven, right, that the defamatory, the defamatory words are presumed to be false, and then the burden is on the defendant, so in this case, Andrew Shearer, to prove that, in fact, they were true. Now, another couple things to remember about this is that when we talk about libel, we're talking about written or recorded defamation, including, you know, broadcasting, right? And, the, and, and then we're talking about slander, we're talking about spoken uh, defamation, right? And there's a lot of... Uh, in a, in a lot of jurisdictions, in a lot of provinces, um, the distinction between the two has been wiped out by statute, but not in BC. And I don't believe in Ontario either. Now, in terms of the defenses uh, to a defamation um, uh, claim, um, it's, it's, as a general rule, it's no defense, right, that the defendant um, didn't intend to defame the person or that they took all reasonable care or honestly believe what they were saying was true or that they're simply reporting something that they heard from a reliable source, right? Um, um, that's not usually a defense. Now, the way it works, though, is that there are kind of um, uh, three main defenses, right? One of them, and, and again, in these three um, in some of the defenses, it doesn't matter whether whether there's malice, and malice means sort of evil intent by the speaker, and in others it does. One of the defenses is justification, right? Okay, the words are true. An honest belief, um, again, is usually not uh, a defense if the words really aren't true. Uh, but if the person, the defendant, can tr- can prove that the, the 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 subject matter of the defamation is, and this is the language the courts use, is substantially true. Um, that can be very sig- um, significant, right? And a failed defense of justification, by the way, is risky to run because it can increase the damages. Now, here's where we want to get really specific in talking about public figures and public officials, right? There's an absolute privilege, okay, and this is a defense, to words published in certain situations, okay? Including um, among them are words or things that are said in Parliament, or the legislature, or in any in committees or working committees of the parliament um, or um, legislatures. Similarly, statements made um, by um, uh, executive officers relating to affairs of the state. So usually, this covers ministers and possibly deputy ministers. Um, anything that happens in a judicial or tribunal proceeding, again, an administrative tribunal, for example, um, including preparation for litigation and, and uh, solicitor-client um, communications. Um, also, statements between spouses are absolutely privileged. So you can understand in this one, in terms of absolute privilege, the point that I sort of made when I tweeted about this was that, look, if this is made, if these comments are made in a committee or they're made in the well of the House of Commons, then there, there's an absolute privilege, Okay. So we don't know what the details on that are. Then you come down to qualified privilege. That's another one of the defenses. That's the third defense. Justification, absolute privilege, then qualified privilege. These are situations where a defendant has an objective interest or duty, it could be legal, moral, or social, um, to convey whatever material they're conveying with somebody who has a reciprocal duty to receive it, right? And the classic example here for is, is an employment reference, right? Um, 
but it doesn't usually include um, news media. Courts don't usually recognize a duty to disseminate things to the, to the news. Um, so usually we talk about when somebody's speaking because they're protecting their own interests or common interests of mutual concern, a, a duty to protect the interests of others, public interests are here. Um, again, these are, these are possible defenses which are available, provided there's no absolute privilege because the thing was spoken in the House of, House of Commons. But even these defenses are lost by overpublication, um, and that means making things too widely available, including to those who have no interest in receiving it. So those are the three, three of the main defenses. Now, um, one of the things is that when you look at justification, right, that it's true, um, it doesn't matter, even if the, even if, um, the person who's speaking the defamation is, um, has the worst intentions possible. If it's true, then no right of action can lie. Same thing uh, with absolute privilege. Okay, so in this case, if no matter what uh, uh, Mr. Shear said, if it was in the context of his work as a parliamentarian, or um, then even if he had total malice and he was doing everything knowingly um, to to um, to hurt Justin Trudeau, it it, it wouldn't matter because that's protected. These absolute privileges are, are absolute, as we say. And then, however, on some of the other defense which are available, and I mentioned to you the one of qualified privilege. If you can show malice, if uh, the plaintiff can show that the defendant acted with malice, it can defeat the defense. The same thing happens with a couple other defenses which are available, and, and those two are of interest here as well. Uh, one of them is what we call fair comment, right? And these are matters of public interest or concern, right? And usually when we talk about a fair comment uh, defense, we say, um, are the facts that are being used true and undistorted? And is the comment a sort of legitimate opinion honestly held? Okay, here it doesn't matter if the facts are, if the comment's true. Uh, and this typically happens in situations where we're talking about public affairs or public works or whatever. So again, maybe if it's outside the context of parliament, um, fair comment. But again, if you can show malice, it defeats that defense. Finally, the other defense, and these, uh, as I tell my students, these defenses admittedly overlap to some extent, is a defense which is described as the responsible communication on matters of public importance, right? And this is a reasonably new defense, which is available to people who publish material of public interest, for example, in blogs or websites or newspapers. And what they have to show to avail themselves of this defense is that the material is a matter of public um, interest, right? That there's a genuine need for the public to know, and that they acted responsibly in making the communication. Now, here again, if you can show malice, or if the plaintiff can show the defendant is acting with malice, then the... the um, then the um, then the, the the claim then the defense is not going to be available. So that's a sort of um, uh, outline of the law. So it, it certainly, insofar as any comments are made within the within the House of Commons or within um, you know the auspices of one's role as a parliamentarian, very difficult to. Um, to, to, to have liability for that. And then even if the um, absolute privilege doesn't attach and some other qualified privilege um, is argued, again, uh, the only way to sort of um, uh, defeat those types of arguments are by showing malice. And it's, it's very difficult to show malice. So two sort of takeaways from that. Number one, yeah. um, pundits from the political side are saying there's no way the prime minister wants to, to take this whole thing into an open court and have all sorts of things dragged out for, for the news media to disseminate about. Uh, the other is whether Mr. Scheer, who is daring the prime minister uh, to go ahead and pull the trigger on a lawsuit, yeah. uh, whether he, you know, whether there's enough there that Mr. Scheer is actually in any kind of legal jeopardy. I, I don't know if you have a good sense on one or the other of those things. 
I mean, I, you know, my sense of it is, is to me, to my mind, there's no coincidence that Mr. Trudeau, I mean, this is just, this is a, a, a complete opinion based on my judgment of the facts. This is not, you know, this is certainly not a legal opinion. But my sense of it is, is that since Gerard Butts left the PMO, uh, that the Prime Minister is really kind of flailing around in terms of how to respond uh, and how to address the public. And I think in this case, inviting his lawyer to write a letter uh, to Mr. Shearer and then have that letter publicly available threatening, um, you know, defamation, I can't really understand um, what the objective of that is. It's true. I don't think he wants to find himself in court. Um, and I likely think that were he to find himself in court, that one of the defenses uh, Mr. Shear would be able to um, avail himself of. Again, I'm not clear on the facts whether these statements were made in the well of the House of Commons or outside of it, but nevertheless, significant defenses are available. So I don't think really what Mr. Trudeau wants to do is to litigate, it, but it, as is the past experience, which I outlined to you at the top of the segment, I mean, this has happened before. And these are usually threats which are then withdrawn and that are part of a kind of political um, theater. Yeah. Um, turning our attention south of the border, and we've touched on this since the Mueller report wrapped up, but uh, Mr. Barr, the Attorney General, initially wrote that four-page letter, the summary of the report, with the only direct quote we have attributed to it so far, uh, and appears to have understated, at least to some degree, the uh, the scope of it or the length of it. Uh, and now we're getting, per the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, that some of the special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators have apparently been telling their associates that Attorney General William Barr did not properly convey how damaging their findings were for uh, the president. Um, it goes as far as to say that they're quoting some of these sources who are saying that uh, people on the investigative team are calling uh, evidence they compiled on obstruction of justice, quote, unquote, alarming and significant. Is this worthy of some concern here, Jeff? Or? I would think so. I mean... Let's remember that throughout the course of the Mueller investigation, you know, from Mueller all the way down through all of the staff lawyers who were working on the investigation and everybody else who was working in a supportive capacity on that investigation was absolutely leak-proof. So that there was that everything that we talked about, when is the Mueller investigation, we were reading the tea leaves, trying to figure out based on the indictments what was going on, but it was an absolute leak-proof vault. And, 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 this, and the message that that sent, I think, um, to the credit of Mr. Mueller, is that we're not going to try this thing in the court of public opinion. We're going to do the investigation. We're going to let the indictments uh, come as they will, and then in the end, we'll leave the report um, for the scrutiny of, um, of, uh, of of Congress and ultimately, hopefully, the American um, people. And I think what happened was, um, you know, that perhaps too much faith was placed in the kind of, that the Attorney General would sort of discharge his job in a completely nonpartisan fashion. And what's now happened is not Mr. Mueller himself, but some of the other attorneys who were working on the investigation have looked at the summary by Mr. Mueller where he says, where he concludes um, that there's no obstruction of justice and uh, are saying, are speaking out, effectively acting now as whistleblowers and saying, look, if you're not going to release this thing in its entirety and let the American people and allow Congress to judge, let us be very clear that we found significant evidence of um, obstruction of justice. And it clearly, even the portion of the very small portion of the report, which you quote, is one in which we say he's not exonerated. So as I said on past shows, I think what uh, Mr. Mueller's team really wanted here was for the um, 
for the Attorney General to permit Congress to make this decision, and really for a decision on impeachment to hinge on whether or not there was sufficient evidence of obstruction of justice to go to the Senate for a trial, as has been done in past similar cases, particularly the Clinton case, right? So their frustration and their anger is now coming out here, and I think they're acting as public whistleblowers. So I'm not surprised by that. I do think it's significant, um, and I do think that what the way in which likely Mr. Mo- Mr. Barr is trying to triangulate here is he knows that eventually all or parts of the report will come out, and again, in the fullness of time, and he wants to be able to say what I said was basically accurate, although I obviously, you know, put the president's best foot forward, but sort of have the attention and the interest on it um, wane because of the time and have the narrative sort of move on to the next thing. It's a very, um, I think, kind of... Um, uh, um, you know, opaque and dishonest kind of approach uh, to a matter of significant public significance. Now, another aspect of that is uh, Jerry Nadler, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, is saying you cannot trust Mr. Barr's four-page summary of the report because the Attorney General is, quote, biased. Another quote from Mr. Nadler, remember, Barr is a biased person. He's someone who's an agent of the administration, is an appointee, a political appointee of the president, whose interests he may very well be protecting here. Uh, Do we have some cause at this point, Jeff, to be concerned about um, where Mr. Barr's loyalties lie? Um, yeah, short answer is yes. Um, uh, look, the one of the there's a lot of difficulties and problems with sort of the um, the conventional way of doing things in in this area, which we're probably going to be revised and subject to greater legal regulation in the future. Um, but for now, um, the the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, but they're also appointed by the president and they're a member of their cabinet. So it's very and so that they have to. Um, and we talked about this even in the Canadian context with the kind of duality of the roles that a justice minister plays, also being minister of justice. I mean, there's some of that is true also in the American context, right? So that you have to be this kind of objective law enforcement official. At the same time, you're the chief sort of um, legal advisor to the government as a whole, and you act as the government's um, lawyer. So what happens in situations where these kinds of duties conflict? Well, clearly, um, you know, Jeff Sessions, for example, thought that he needed to recuse himself because of that conflict. But we have in Mr. Barr, uh, somebody who effectively was very clear, very transparent, that they had prejudged the entire uh, legal validity of the investigation as a citizen sitting at home and watching television and reading the newspaper and had even sent an unsolicited memo uh, to uh, Mr. Mueller's team indicating that he felt there was no legal basis uh, for the investigation. And, um, and, and so that's very significant. And that was his opinion. It was clear. And, you know, he had given some assurances during the confirmation process that he wouldn't be biased, but the evidence certainly on its face, uh, looks like it was the other uh, little piece of it is of course that, you know, the question of whether a president can be indicted, it's clearly uh, justice department policy that they can't. And that was always the assumption that, um, Mr. Mueller wouldn't uh, recommend indictment because of that. But one of the things that Mr. Mueller, what Mr. Barr has sort of suggested uh, in his letter, and is and which is certainly not true in some of his statements to the public, he's also said this too, which is just not correct, is that you don't, you can't be legal of obstruction if you're, you can't be liable, I should say, for obstruction of justice if you're innocent of or acquitted of the underlying crime. Uh, that's not true. Uh, you can be guilty of obstruction even if the underlying crime was not successful. 
Okay, so uh, if we boil all this down, Mr. Barr is in charge of the Mueller report. Uh, he's His office is the only, other than the investigators themselves, who, who have uh, purview of the entire unredacted document. At the moment, he's going through it and uh, ostensibly redacting some stuff. We have all these concerns swirling around here. Um, is there a, a real and genuine concern he could just black out information that uh, he wants to suppress? And if that's the fact, um, will we ever see an unredacted Mueller report or should we see an unredacted Mueller report at this point? I mean, I think there probably are some legitimate redactions that could potentially go in there. Um, but usually, again, when um, documents are redacted, you know, even between lawyers who are exchanging documents and they're redacting something, say, for example, it's subject to the privilege, there'll be some brief explanation as to why that is, because potentially it's, it might need to be challenged. So we're going to have to have some basis to determine why certain things are redacted. Now, one of the main reasons there's talk of redaction in this case would be the fact that there's grand jury testimony in there. And so what grand jury testimony is, is it's kind of, um, you know, this uh, preliminary stage in an investigation where members of the public are brought together and shown certain evidence and asked if it raises to the level of what's called the prima facie case. Is there enough if we could prove all these facts? Uh, to convict this person. And if grand juries decide not to indict on a particular basis of facts, generally that information is sort of privately held and is not disclosed to the public because you don't want to taint innocent people with a bare suspicion, right? Um, however, in cases where there's a public interest and uh, questions are a matter of political as well as legal accountability, there have been precedents in the past where grand jury um, information has been released. So again, these things are going to have to be subject. To, potentially, there's going to be arguments about some redactions, but it depends on what the volume of those those redactions are, and I would imagine if the if the report comes out overly redacted, there'll be fights on the redaction and potentially comments also made by those who worked on the Mueller investigation or leaks of this sort, um, suggesting that that's um, improper. In the meantime, you know, eventually the um, patience of the supervising um, uh, committees in Congress will wear out, and they and these uh, subpoenas will come. And if the Mueller uh, investigative report is not uh, uh, released uh, without further ado, then there will be um, litigation, and ultimately um, that litigation could go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, as we continue uh, the Apprentice, the White House edition. <laughs> um, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen has been thrown overboard uh, a long line of people in the Trump cabinet where there seems to be a fairly big revolving door. Uh, we're getting some new information today from CNN that apparently uh, Trump, uh, as of last week, uh, in a fury, ordered her to close part of the border, and, and she resisted that. And, and he is, uh, as he is wont to do, uh, has taken his frustration out on her, and she is out, um, which is not an unusual story again for the Trump cabinet. So your take on, on the latest development? Well, once again, the same problem arises for Mr. Trump here. He's got a legal problem, just like he did with the interim appointment, you'll recall, of uh, Mr. Whitaker, where he skipped over the person that's statutorily required to be in the place. And in this case, it would have been Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, who'd been overseeing the Mueller report, whom, of course, Mr. Uh, Trump disliked and distrusted. In this case, actually, this isn't the pro- he's um, jumping over the proper uh, succession according to statute. So there's a potential question as to whether who he's putting in there in the interim is even valid or not. But What's going on here is, and by most accounts, and what seems to be quite um, quite a reasonable inference to draw, is that Mr. Trump is the sort of removing the last vestiges of people who were loyal to Mr. Kelly, his former. Um, his former chief of staff, and this was one of those people. Um, and 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 what's remarkable, though, about this story is that she's generally regarded um, by observers uh, and by by most people as having done unconscionable, um, you know, uh, having unconscionably separated um, 
children from their parents at the borders in pursuit of an illegal policy, um, which will be a huge stain on the kind of historical records of the United States, in particular of the Trump presidency. And in fact, she's being let go now because she simply not hasn't been willing to go far enough uh, down this road. But the direction that she's taken, the policies that she's taken, and that ultimately she'll be remembered for, are among the darkest days in the American um, you know, legal history around the policing of immigration and the borders. So it's alarming because it suggests that even this person who's gone farther than anybody else and has really done Mr. Trump's bidding, even in terms of violating what are ultimately you know, international human rights norms, is being let go for sort of failing to follow the president's orders uh, directly. So it's, it's another alarming case that Mr. Trump is willing to be very literal about his promise around erecting a border wall and his statements around um, an attitude towards refugees and immigrants is, is not just rhetoric or hyperbole, it's actually what he believes and that he will attempt to get somebody into that position who will do uh, what he wants without any fight whatsoever. Yeah, and that is definitely concerning. Uh, finishing up, uh, Joe Biden, uh, who by all accounts is going to jump into the presidential race. I don't have any doubt of that at this point, unless there's a last minute abort. But he uh, he got in a bit of a trouble recently, uh, sort of shades of the Me Too movement, where some women came forward and said, listen, I'm uncomfortable with how he conducted himself around me. There was apparently some inappropriate touching. Biden comes out in a video uh, that he put on his Twitter account, says, listen, uh, this is who I am. I reach out, I connect with people, I grab them by the shoulders, I hug them, and, and perhaps times have changed and I need to reassess that. So is uh, your assessment of whether that's enough to pull them down or, or, or what? Well, I mean, it's a matter of politics, right? So um, obviously because of the Trump presidency, I mean, for better or for worse, that Trump has obviously been able to become elected as president with, you know, allegations of extremely serious um, uh, harassment and even sexual assault uh, that haven't been, you know, sort of convincingly um, disproven. But somebody like Joe Biden, who's obviously, um, you know, kind of old-fashioned and maybe inappropriately affectionate, is sort of being held to this higher bar. But in the Democratic Party, you know, this is becoming a litmus test issue. And in a year where, um, you know, there's so much anger around um, Trump's election in the first place, but also around, you know, the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, and particularly on in Biden's case, the fact that he was he's been around for a long time. Right, so he was on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Anita Hill hearings. Right, so in a way, he was complicit in sort of um, having you know her 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 um, you know her claims be treated with less than the dignity. Uh, that they deserve. So that's already been an Achilles heel for them. So now you have a couple women who are coming forward saying, look, we don't feel that this was in the nature of um, a sexual assault or sexual harassment, but it was inappropriate and it made me feel uncomfortable and it was demeaning. And so the question is, how does he react to that? And I think the reaction was tone deaf because rather than sort of saying, look, um, I, I apologize. Um, and I think maybe I have something to learn about interactions that he admitted social norms were changing, but then he sort of made a joke about it and sloughed it off. And it wasn't it wasn't sufficiently sort of um, full throated in terms of saying, look, I recognize what's going on here. And I think that the concerns people have around uh, Mr. Biden is that he's you know he's getting up there in age. He comes from a different generation, and that he might not get these issues. And in the context of a Democratic primary, it's very important because um, you know women are highly motivated around these issues and. I think as a society in general, we're increasingly having low tolerance to sort of violating people's physical boundaries, even where the intention is.
isn't to intimidate and it isn't um, in any way um, otherwise inappropriate. And so we're holding our politicians to a higher standard, particularly on the Democratic side. And Mr. Biden, who's not known for you know handling scandals or difficult situations with the plum, has shown that he, as usual, is sort of a little bit tone deaf around these things. So I think that will hurt his candidacy, and it's a it's a warning shot, I think, for everybody involved in this campaign. Well, it's always a full agenda. Jeff, always appreciate the time. Always a pleasure being on. We'll talk to you next week, Shane. All right, sounds good. We have a bevy of new stuff to chat about. That's TRU lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers talking both Canadian and American politics, and that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. Thanks to my guest today, and we'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station, this is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.